Today's scripture passage comes to us from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 32, through chapter 5, verse 11. If you're using the Black Pew Bible, you can find that on page 912. If you're using the Black Large Print Version, and there's no shame in that, uh, you can find that on page 1161. I have it right here. <laughs> okay, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now the number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled you, your heart, to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back a portion for yourself, part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is God's word. Before we get started looking at uh, our passage this morning, just want to say a brief word of thanks to everyone who has prayed for us and supported us as we've sought to discern the Lord's lead and whether he was calling us to Stonebridge Church in, in Cedar Rapids. And as many of you, I think everyone knows, um, uh, last weekend the congregation voted to call us and we accepted that call, which means in June we'll be moving to Iowa. Um, it goes without saying that this is a really bittersweet thing for us. Um, we are excited to follow God's leading and yet we're grieving already what that means for saying goodbye to all of you whom we deeply love. So thank you for 
loving us well. This is not goodbye yet. We're here till June. Um, so just, you know. Uh, but I think, you know, as, we were, as we've been processing it as a family, Chloe really, I think, captured our hearts well when she said a few days back, I wish we could bring Massachusetts with us to Iowa. Like, that would be ideal. And so just thank you for, um, for your prayers. It's really remarkable to have the kind of support that we've had. And um, just as a, a testimony to you all and your love and your love for Jesus. And so uh, thank you. And let's pray now as we look uh, together at God's Word. Lord, you are the king of the universe. You are the Lord of this church. And we recognize that right now with your word laying open before us, you wish to address your church. And so we want to hear. We want to see you. We want to hear you. We want to understand what you're saying here in this text. And we want to obey it. We want to be changed by it. And we need your help for that to happen. So be with us right now, God. May your spirit fill our hearts to hear you and see you, to be transformed by your gospel. And may you be glorified as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in John chapter 17, uh, when Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that uh, the moment that he was about to be arrested and falsely condemned and crucified was just hours away. This was the conclusion of his earthly ministry. Knowing all of that, in John 17, Jesus prayed to his Father. And more specifically, he prayed to his Father for the church. That was what was on his heart for his apostles, and for all who would believe in him through their witness. So he prayed in his last hours for us. It's really amazing. And among the various things he prayed for his church in John 17, for their faithfulness, for their protection, for their sanctification, the request that he emphasizes at the conclusion of his prayer is for unity within his church. I do not ask for these only, the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. Even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus prays for our unity. And that makes perfect sense when you think about what he's sending his church into the world to do, to bear witness to him, to make disciples of all nations, it makes sense that one of the things he would be concerned about is that we all be united together. It's very difficult to accomplish anything as a group or as a team if we're moving in different directions. 
So he prays for unity, and as we come to our passage in Acts this morning, uh, and its focus on the church's heart, we see that among the early church, the father answered his son's prayer. We see a remarkable portrait of unity in this passage. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul one heart and soul. They were united in Christ in faith and practice. But what does a heart of unity in the local church look like, practically speaking? What does that actually mean for us? What does that look like, Uh, especially in a world that is so divided, right? Uh, A church that's so divided, churches divided by denominations, by traditions, by factions and tribal identities. How do we, what what does unity in the local church look like? Is it enough, for instance, to simply have the same statement of faith? Is that how, how we achieve unity? Are we looking for a doctrinal unity? Now, of course, that is essential, at least when it comes to the core of the Christian belief system. If you are not agreed on the gospel, you cannot be united in Jesus Christ. There has to be a doctrinal unity on the good news of Jesus. You can't be united in the Savior and reject his message or his authority as king. Uh, And so there's no true church unity apart from a common faith in the gospel. The early church had unity around the gospel. If you go back to chapter 2 in Acts, one of the It's a parallel passage to what we have here at the end of chapter 4. And one of the things that united the church was that they were united in their devotion to the apostles' teaching, the heart of which was the gospel message Jesus entrusted to the apostles uh, to bring to the nations. And so it's not that the church didn't have disagreements on secondary issues in particular. That's why you have the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Because they didn't see eye to eye on everything, and so they got together to sort it out. That's why we have a lot of the epistles in front of us, because there was disunity, there were differences, and they were trying to address those things. But they were united in the gospel. There is a necessity of doctrinal unity in the church. Without that, there can be no unity at all. But as we're going to see in our passage, that's not all there is to unity. Agreeing on the tenets of the faith, especially the core ones, is essential, but it's not sufficient. That is not all that Jesus has in mind for the unity of his church. A heart that's unified in Christ will necessarily show itself not only in what we believe and proclaim, but in how we live and how we treat each other. That, too, is part of unity. Because if you think about it, what we do and say in everyday life, that's what reveals what's really going on inside our hearts. I mean, nobody can see someone else's heart. I can't see into your heart and know what you're thinking. But what's inside will be exposed by how we live. Our hearts will be exposed by our lives. And God in his vision for his church isn't just concerned on what's on the outside. He's concerned about our hearts. And that's the emphasis of this text, the church's heart. 
There's two sections to the passage that CJ just read for us, both of which focus on behavior that flows from the heart. So chapter 4, 32 to 37 shows us a portrait of a unified heart, what the church looks like when the gospel of Jesus grabs us and unites us in faith and practice. That's the end of chapter 4. And then chapter 5, 1 through 11 shows us a very different picture, a portrait of a self-centered heart, what it looks like to pretend to serve the Lord, but really to use faith as a guise to serve oneself and the danger that that poses to the church and its mission. And so we'll start with the unified heart in 432 to 37. Now this section comes directly on the heels of what Pastor Bruce looked at with us last week, the church's boldness. At the end of that passage, the church gathered to pray for a bold witness. And we see here, as the story continues, that that, that bold witness does, in fact, continue. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So we see that continued emphasis on witness, but everything else in this passage focuses not on the church's public witness, but on their daily lives as a community. So the witness continues, but now Luke shifts his focus a little bit to say, what's the church look like itself? How, what, how are they living in the midst of this uh, declaration of Christ? And that's not unrelated to our public witness. How we treat each other within the local church is a powerful part of our witness uh, before the world, whether for good or for bad, right? Uh, If we're preaching a gospel of love, but we can't stand each other, why would the world want to listen to that message? Uh, If we preach a gospel of transformation, but our lives are no different from the world around us, why should anyone care what we have to say? But if our relationships are marked by radical forgiveness, by repentance and love and sacrificial generosity, the world will notice that. And some of them, when they notice it, are going to want in on that, or at least are going to be willing to take us seriously because of what they see. And so how we live as a church is an essential part of our public Witness, And that's what Luke focuses on here. And what we see in our passage is a unity of heart that's expressed in generosity and hospitality within the local church body. Generosity and hospitality within the local church body. Look again at verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Again, that's very similar to what we read at the end of chapter 2. And then verse 34 continues, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, there's an important word of clarification here when you read this passage. Sometimes, when people read this passage, 
they come to the conclusion or they even advocate uh, the, the idea that the early church was somehow communistic or, or socialistic or something like that. Um, communal property, redistribution of wealth, right? We, 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 we see this. Uh, and, and, you know, in a day when socialism is kind of taking on a, an increased popularity among young people in America, uh, sometimes people will point to this passage as evidence that it's somehow biblical as an economic system. Now, at the end of the day, I don't care what you think about the relative merits of the economic systems. You can't get there from here, though. So you can evaluate each of the economic systems, and you can use biblical principles to evaluate them, and you'll find problems with all of them. But you can't say from this passage that it's advocating some sort of modern-day socialist type thing. And I think it's worth showing that briefly because that's such a common idea today. Uh, so there's three reasons why, that, why this doesn't fit into that category. Uh, first, the early church did not eliminate the reality of personal property. Uh, to say that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own is not the same thing as saying that no one owned anything. The stuff still belonged to them. They just didn't treat it as though it did. And that's a very big difference. They treated it as God's and therefore as his church's. It's a picture of radical generosity and hospitality. And we can see that distinction even clearer later in chapter 5 when Peter rebukes Ananias. Uh, he wasn't obligated to sell his property. He wasn't even obligated to give all of the proceeds to the church. It still was his, and he had the right to decide what to do with it. And so this passage doesn't eliminate the reality of personal property except in one's heart except in how I think about it and what I do with it. Um, so that's one clarification. Second, in both of those uh, economic systems, socialism, communism, it's the state that collects the money and makes decisions on how to distribute it. And I'm pretty sure that the early church was not asking the Roman Empire to decide how to spend their money. That's just not what we see. Instead, it's the church that's organizing the care of the congregation. They, the apostles in particular, overseeing that distribution. Though, if you keep reading and you get to chapter 6, they find that they need a little help because they can't preach the word full time and carry out all of this stuff as well. Um, and then third, and I think the most important point here, is that the system of care that we read about here was governed not by law, but by grace. Not by law, but by grace. There was no rule that if you owned property, you had to sell it and give it to the church. Uh, again, Peter's words to Ananias in chapter 5, verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So people were not sharing their possessions because they had to, but because they wanted to. They wanted to. Their generosity and hospitality was fueled by grace, not by law. That's what we're told in verse 33. And great grace was upon them all. This was a community formed and fueled by grace. Because they received grace, they operated by grace. Because Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life, gave everything to love them, they willingly 
laid down their lives and were eager to share what they had to love others. It's a, it's a hospitality and a generosity fueled by grace with a heart that's united in Christ. And so the category that helps us make sense of this text here is not state-run economic systems. Rather, the category that helps us make sense of this is quite simply family. This is how families operate. When we've had trouble paying our bills, fixing a car, at times buying groceries, our family has jumped in to help us out. It's just, it's what you do. When I visit my folks in Nebraska, uh, they don't make a distinction between which sodas in the fridge are for guests and which ones are off limits. You know, what's theirs is mine and what's mine is theirs because we're family. That's how it operates. And that's the picture you see in the local church body in this passage. They're one big family of God in Christ. Ownership's not the dominant category in a family. Love is the dominant category. And that's what we see here. So now comes the uncomfortable question. If that's what we see there, what does that look like today? What does that look like for a local church today? How are we doing as a local church with regard to generosity and hospitality that's fueled by the grace of God? Uh, can we say what verse 34 says? That there is not a needy person among them. Can we say that? And are we willing to disrupt our lives to be able to say it, if not? Now, one thing I will say about this church is that it is a ridiculously generous congregation. And we have seen that in so many ways. We see it every year with our giving not just to the general fund, but to missions, to special needs. Some of you can tell stories just like what we read in Acts chapter 4, the way that people here have come alongside you as family. Uh, some of us do pretty well financially, but there are still needs within our congregation, and, and we want to be aware of that. There are households in our church, for instance, who need a car right now. Not because they want to upgrade, but because they don't have a car. That's a need in our congregation. There are households who need help with medical bills. Uh, there are members looking for jobs. And those are just the financial needs. You know, there are other kinds of needs as well. There are people in the congregation who feel lonely, who need friendship. There are people who feel scared or sad, who need someone to talk to, someone to walk alongside them. There are people fighting sin, and they need support and accountability and discipleship. Someone, we need, there are people who need someone to watch their kids, someone to provide a meal, someone to drive them to doctor's appointments. There are needs within our congregation. And, and if that's true about us, imagine what it's like for, the, for our unbelieving neighbors around us, too the people that we've been called to bear witness to Christ among. Which is not to say that the local church is the only line of support for its members. Uh, in fact, in Scripture, the individual bears the primary responsibility. In, in Ephesians 4, Paul says to let one labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with those in need. And and later in, uh, in the church in Thessalonica, when 
when idleness, uh, laziness had become a problem, Paul got to the point where he said, if anyone's unwilling to work, uh, let him not eat. Like, it was that bad. So there's a personal responsibility, right? But we all know that despite our best efforts, we can still find ourselves facing need, uh, injury or illness, a downturn economy. There are any number of circumstances that can take our best efforts and turn them upside down and, us, and our, find ourselves in a place we never thought we'd be. There are systemic inequalities that can keep us in situations we never think we'll be able to escape. And so it's not just personal responsibility. Um, and, and even, you know, we can often find ourselves in need despite that effort. And so the second line of support, according to Scripture, is actually the family, the biological or legal one, if you're adopted or, or married into it. So that's the second line. First Timothy, Paul addresses a situation in First Timothy where uh, there, were, there were widows within the church who were being neglected by their relatives, relatives who actually had the means to care for them, such that the full burden was being put on the local church. Paul rebukes them for that. He says in 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are strong words. So, so the local church is not the only line of support when we find ourselves facing need. There's personal responsibility, and if that breaks down, there's family. But the local church is an essential part of that because even though the family does have a responsibility, the church is itself a family. And, and we see that here. We are a family. Now, the tempting thing to do, though, the tempting thing to do with this is to think, okay, so there's some needs. What kind of one-off activity can I do to help alleviate those needs? We, our temptation when we're dealing with needs within the community of faith is to turn the needs of the body into a project, something that's got a beginning and an end. So I can help with that and then go home to my nuclear family or whatever else it was I want to spend my time on. And what this passage calls us to is quite different than that. It's not, that's not the picture here. What this passage calls us to is an everyday generosity, an everyday hospitality. It's not just about the special occasions. It's pretty easy to include people in your world for a special occasion. It's a lot harder to make that an everyday part of your life. But the reality is you're never actually going to know what the needs of the community of faith are if, there isn't an, if you're not involved in each other in an everyday sort of way. If you're not sitting down and talking to each other over meals, if we're not in each other's lives, we're not going to know how to come alongside and others won't know how to come alongside us when we find ourselves facing those needs. And the world won't be able to see the radical impact that the gospel of Jesus can make among a, among a community if we're not living a kind of everyday generosity and hospitality. And I can think of no better resource that unpacks this vision uh, than Rosaria Butterfield's recent book, 
on what she calls radically ordinary hospitality. Her book is called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And I want to just read a couple sections from that uh, briefly and, and listen to how she describes this kind of radical, ordinary, everyday hospitality and think about what, what would that look like for me? What would that look like for us? She writes this, those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know the gospel comes with a house key. They see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. A truly hospitable heart anticipates everyday Christ-centered table fellowship and guests who are genuinely in need. Such a heart seeks opportunities to serve. Radical, radically ordinary hospitality doesn't keep fussy lists or make big deals about invitations. Invitations are open. Practically, practicing radically ordinary hospitality necessitates building margin time into the day, time where regular routines can be disrupted but not destroyed. This margin stays open for the Lord to fill, to take an older neighbor to the doctor, to babysit on the fly, to make room for a family displaced by a flood or a worldwide refugee crisis. Living out radically ordinary hospitality leaves us with plenty to share because we intentionally live below our means. In radically ordinary hospitality, host and guest are interchangeable. If you come to my house for dinner and notice that I'm still teaching a math lesson to a child and my laundry remains on the dining room table unfolded, you roll up your sleeves and you fold my laundry or set the table or load the dishwasher or feed the dogs. Radically ordinary hospitality means that hosts are not embarrassed to receive help and guests know that their help is needed. A family of God gathering daily together needs each and every person. And radically ordinary hospitality gives evidence of faith in Jesus' power to save. It doesn't get dug in over politics or culture or where someone stands on current events it knows what conversation means, what identity in Christ does, and what repentance creates. It knows that sin is deceptive. To be deceived means to be taken captive by an evil force to do its bidding. It knows that people need to be rescued from their sin, not given pep talks about good choice making. It remembers that Jesus rescues people from their sin. Jesus rescued us. Jesus lives and reigns. I encourage you, uh, it's a short little book, but it's worth picking up and thinking about what does this look like for a family of God living out a radical generosity that embodies the gospel both within the congregation and beyond. What would that look like? It's not about following a new set of rules uh, this isn't about you know, pressure to perform. This is about hearts united in Christ, overflowing in love, 
amid a watching world and taking steps to make sure there's actually space in my life for something like that to happen. There's so much busyness in our world that crowds out any opportunity to actually love meaningfully. Part of being different from the world is not overloading our lives so much that we can't have space simply to love. So a heart unified in Christ expresses itself in a radical, ordinary hospitality amid a courageous witness. And Peter gives us a specific example of that at the end of chapter 4. He shows the example of Barnabas, who took something that belonged to him, something that he probably profited from. He sold a field and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He puts a face on the general habit of the early church. But Barnabas' example also sets us up for the contrast that follows in chapter 5. And what's really one of the most shocking stories in the book of Acts, when I was thinking about which passages to select from Acts to preach on, I was trying to avoid this one because it's really hard. It's really weird. Uh, In fact, I tried to farm it off to several other people. But here we are. So so if you look at chapter 5, look at 5, 1 through 2. And here we see this with Ananias and Sapphira, Not a portrait of a unified heart, but a portrait of a self-centered heart. So look at 5, 1 through 2, and and listen to the intentional echo of the end of chapter 4. Like the story is continuing here. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, just like Barnabas, and with his wife's knowledge kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Also kind of like Barnabas. So, so there's some intentional echoing here, but there's some very different things happening, right? This whole part about them keeping back for themselves some of the proceeds and only bringing part of it. Now, again, we have to stop and ask the question, what, what precisely do Ananias and Sapphira do wrong here? What, what is their sin, their crime, if you will, that results in such a harsh and swift consequence? Well, as we noted earlier, it's not that they were required to sell property and give it to the church. There's no law or rule about that. Nor is it, nor were they required to sell 100 or to give 100% of the proceeds to the church either. Again, Peter's response in verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? They had full, you know, uh, Authority to decide what they did with their money. There was no law that they were breaking here by keeping back part of it. The problem is that they willfully misrepresented the size and nature of their gift. They claimed to give the entire sale amount, but secretly kept back some for themselves. Probably to look good spiritually. You know, you could imagine everyone's excited about Barnabas's gift and how generous it is. It's like, well, we can do that, but, but you know, they wanted the praise that comes from giving generous, generously, but the personal gain that comes from keeping the money. They wanted both of those things at the same time. And so deception and greed that came from a self-centered heart. And it wasn't an accident. It's not like they forgot how much they actually sold it for and they accidentally only gave part of it. Uh, or that they changed their plans midstream and because something came up. Their misrepresentation was premeditated. Verse 2, 
with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. And then when Sapphira shows up later, Peter gives her a chance to come clean. Verse 8, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. They plotted in advance to deceive the church, to do something that looked like it belonged to the spirit of generosity sweeping through the congregation, but instead something that would make much of themselves instead of God. And then when they were called on it, they continued in the lie. They continued in the lie. That's not something that flows from a heart united in Christ and overflowing with love. That's something that flows from a self-centered heart. And that's what Peter attributes it to. If you look again at verse 3 in his rebuke, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? It's an intentional contrast from the beginning of our section in chapter 4, the one heart. Here's the self-deceived heart. And God is concerned not merely with what we do, but what's going on in our hearts. And it might be easy for us to, you know, look at Ananias and Sapphira and kind of look down on them for such a willful, deliberate scheme of deception. But how often are we tempted to do or say something that makes us look more spiritually mature than we actually are? Kent Hughes writes, examples of Ananias' sin today include creating the impression that we're a people of prayer when we're not, or making it look like we have it all together when we don't, promoting the idea that we are generous when we're so tight we squeak when we smile, misrepresenting our spiritual effectiveness you know, for example, saying, you know, when I was at the crusade in New York, I ran the whole follow-up program when, in truth, you were a substitute counselor, something like that. So we can misrepresent our spiritual maturity and not be that far off from what Ananias and Sapphira do here. What they didn't understand, and what we often don't understand, is that lying to the church is lying to God. Lying to the body of Christ is lying to Christ. That's what Peter tells us. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to man, but to God, verse 4. How is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Verse 9. It's interesting. This is one more indication of how Jesus remains the central figure of the book of Acts. He is active and present by his spirit in his church, such that love for Jesus shows itself in love for the church, and lying to the church means lying to Jesus. That's the relationship you see here, the connection between Christ and his bride, and the consequences for Ananias and Sapphira are severe. They both drop dead when caught in their deception. It's pretty shocking. Uh, some would say it's a bit overkill. It seems unfair. Why didn't they get a chance and so on? Um, why is Peter so nasty? Um, of course, it's not Peter that's judging them. This is God's consequences 
Peter's simply the prophet announcing it. And, and you know, we can read this, and it makes some of us pretty uncomfortable. What if, what if God does something like that for me? I mean, yeah, I, I had a friend who, who once uh, wanted to do a, a biblical theology on internship, and, and his proof text was this one here, where it says, the young men carried them out. He's like, those are the interns. <laughs> you know, if God did the same thing, Every time we misrepresented our spiritual maturity, our interns, Austin was sick this morning, he couldn't be, he'd be super busy though, right? I mean, who, who really can stand? And, and that, that uncomfortableness is actually part of the point of Ananias and Sapphira receiving such a startling and severe consequence. It's to remind the church that God is holy holy. God is holy. He's not to be trifled with or used to promote yourself. What's interesting is that just as great grace fueled the church in verse 33 earlier, here the reaction to God's discipline of both Ananias and Sapphira is that a great fear came over the congregation. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. God's grace and God's holiness are not at odds with each other. They are inseparable. You can't play one off of the other and think you're going to get away with it. What's in our hearts will be exposed, whether on earth, here, or at the judgment seat of Christ. And both God's grace and God's holiness are effective motivators for living faithfully as his followers. He's a holy God, and that's why we need his grace so much. But don't be tempted to make light of his grace and ignore his holiness. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with all of this? First, we ask God to examine our hearts. We ask God to examine our hearts. We pray what David prayed in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And, and where we see something we don't like as we ask God to search our hearts, something that dishonors God, something that deprives his people of love, where we see something that's exposed there, we repent. We repent. We seek help repenting. You know, we reflect on, on that. Where's that coming from? You, you might spend time journaling or praying or reading Scripture, talking to a trusted friend who can help you grow spiritually. But we ask God to search our hearts, and then we address what he exposes. That's the first step. Second, we ask God to help us see the local church the way he sees it, not as a mere institution, uh, even less as a project, but as the body of Christ and our eternal family in God. Brothers and sisters united in Christ, bound by a common love, a common spirit, a common hope, and a common cause to make Christ known. We want to see his church the way he sees it. And then finally, we devote ourselves to making room in our hearts for one another and space in our lives 
for one another. And that's maybe the hardest application point for some of us. But ask God to show you two things that you can do differently to make radical, ordinary hospitality more true of your life than it is right now. Two things. God, show me two things that I can do differently. Maybe it's rearranging your budget. Maybe it's thinning out your daily planner, choosing not to fill every vacant mark. Maybe it's getting involved in a home group, deciding to share one meal a week with someone else in the church, or one meal a week with a neighbor. Ask God, what does that look like for me? What what are two things I can do to make more space in my life for this to look more like a reality? We need to ask God as a church, as we move forward in our commitment to see Christ treasured above all things, that he would make us a people marked by radically ordinary hospitality with the wind of God's grace at our backs and the fear of his holiness before our eyes. And may that hospitality be the context, the backdrop, the the fuel even for bold and courageous witness to Christ in a world who so desperately needs him. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Lord, what a challenging passage in so many ways. It challenges our our concept of you. It challenges our standards of life. But Lord, would we set ourselves to follow you? Lord, would you keep us from operating out of guilt or shame, out of obligation, out of law. Lord, there's no law in this passage apart from, there's no law that motivates, I should say. There are standards, there are rules, there are, there's holiness all over, but it's your grace that drives us, God. We're accepted by your grace and we love by your grace. So would your grace be our fuel? Would your holiness be our fuel? Would you help us to trust you and follow you as a generous congregation? Would you open our eyes to see needs that we weren't even aware of? Would you open our hearts to joyfully help meet them? Lord, we need you, and we thank you that in Christ you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen.